So we all know about the Bible, um, but how much do we all know uh, about the Bible? And, and I ask because one of the leading reasons uh, that people tend to struggle with their faith, leave their faith, walk away from church as they get older, is that people uh, have a tendency to never progress uh, beyond uh, what was presented to them in their childhood as to an understanding of what the Bible is. So for the past few weeks, uh, I have undertaken the endeavor of doing my very best to try and get everyone to read their Bible. Um, because statistically speaking, and I know it's probably not true because we're a congregation that's well above the statistical average of congregations, uh, but statistically speaking, uh, quite a few of you in the room don't actually read it. Uh, your exposure to it is what I tell you on a Sunday morning. Um, and uh, it's worth more of a read than that. Um, but I've been talking to you about, uh, A, why we should be interested uh, in the Bible, uh, how the Bible is constructed, uh, the way it's put together and laid out. Um, we've talked, uh, last week we talked about the significance of the beginning uh, of the story, um, and we talked about how the story of the Bible doesn't actually start with in the beginning. Uh, it actually starts uh, with Jesus in an empty tomb. Um, because there would have been no reason to document the life of Jesus had there not been a resurrection. Had they not found the empty tomb, there would have been no reason to spread word of the person of Jesus. Uh, and there definitely would have been no reason for anyone to sacrifice their life uh, for that cause. And so if there had not been the resurrection, there would be no Bible as we know it and have it uh, today. Now, eventually, Paul, who we're going to get to, uh, not this week, but maybe next week, um, eventually, Paul and a few others began to travel around the Mediterranean Rim, uh, spreading this message and planting churches. But if it wasn't for the resurrection, none of that, none of that would have happened. It would not have been worth the danger that it posed to their life to spread this message. Um, now, when the Gentiles, which we kind of started talking about last week, which is all the non-Jewish people, uh, when the Gentiles uh, and a few others um, became enamored with a specific Jewish person, Jesus, uh, they also became enamored with the Jewish scriptures, right? And, and they embraced these texts as part of their own scriptures. And while they were interested in the Jewish texts and what they had to say, they were not the least bit interested in the Jewish religion, um, which is an interesting line to draw when you're interested in something. Um, well, I'm interested in the text, but not the religion that flows from it. Here's why uh, they weren't interested in the Jewish faith, uh, because um, here's what was going on. Uh, that at that time that the word started to spread and Gentiles started becoming interested in the Jewish scriptures, which we now know as the Old Testament, the temple, the Jewish temple, had been completely destroyed. Uh, that was destroyed by Rome in AD 70. And um, the priests and rabbis and scholars of that time were trying to figure out how to practice the Jewish faith with no temple. Because the, the temple was the center of the Jewish faith. And at the end of the first century, uh, Judaism took on a very different flavor and rabbinic Judaism was born. And the second thing that was going on is that uh, the Jewish people would periodically side with the Roman Empire. 
which on its face seems weird because the Roman Empire was the one that had been, uh, had been um, uh, in control of Israel, the one who was oppressing them. Uh, they were the ones who destroyed the temple. This was all going on. But yet, when it came to the Christians, the Jewish people would regularly side with the Roman Empire. And there was this rivalry aspect going on between Jewish followers and Christians, right? And so the Jewish leaders were kind of like, hey, Christians, you're a knockoff faith. Uh, you know, you're using our scriptures, and then you're taking our scriptures to the Romans and giving us a bad name with it. And so they didn't care for that. So they had a tendency to side with Rome against the Christians. Now, the third thing that was going on, which is why the Gentiles had no desire uh, to be Jewish. Um, in fact, they thought Jewish people were kind of odd because um, Jewish people wouldn't work on a specific day of the week, which they found to be odd. They wouldn't eat some things ever. Um, they wouldn't come over for dinner and they wouldn't invite you over for dinner. Um, they wouldn't let you marry their daughters. They wouldn't marry your daughters. They kept themselves completely separate. They had all these rules that were difficult to keep. And this was kind of what the social structure of the Jewish people were. And everybody who wasn't Jewish just found it all kind of odd and didn't really want to be a part of it. So there was a lot going on within the whole time period. So consequently, uh, Christians took the Jewish people's book and their scriptures, but didn't take their religion. And their interest in the scriptures was historical, not religious. Historical, not religious. Their interest was, uh, and I think I'm going to make up a word here, Christological. <laughs> because what they were doing was they were taking those, the, those Jewish scriptures and they were fascinated with them because they were finding Jesus in them. Right? And, and the, they found Jesus everywhere in those scriptures. And the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders of the time, they were appalled that these non-Jewish people who couldn't even read Hebrew, right, were misinterpreting or damaging their texts, right? And so the, the, the Gentiles, they, they would reject that Jewish interpretation. They'd be like, yeah, we're reading the same things. We're not getting the same thing out of it that you're getting. So we reject your interpretation. And they would say, you missed your own Messiah. That was the position of Christians at the time. Like Jewish faith, like we're using your scripture. There's a lot there, but you missed the thing that you were looking towards. And so because you missed such a big obvious thing, we are not interested in your interpretations of your scriptures right? So what happened is that the Christians took the Jewish text and made them a part of their own religion. But when they did this, when they did this, they downplayed or ignored or just didn't teach the fabulous, gritty, epic, disturbing history of the Jewish people. They just kind of ignored that part. But the Old Testament chronicles God's uh, redemptive sequential activity in history. See, in Genesis, in Genesis, God shows up as creator. That's what we looked at last week. And this whole idea that far ahead of everybody else, the Jewish people from the beginning with God as creator, like bought into a singular God. But very quickly, 
As we progress from the beginning and start to get into the story of the Old Testament, in the very beginning, God quickly takes off the the creator hat and puts on the founder hat. Because what he did was he founded a nation that would eventually bring bring redemption to the entire world. And through a man who had no children named Abraham, a nation is born and comes forth and is created that will have a multi-generational purpose throughout the Old Testament. A nation that would eventually become a slave to a superpower, to a pharaoh who posted himself, who presented himself as divine, as related to the gods, right? And then Moses goes in and with the demonstration of God's power behind him, declares, listen, you are to let my people go. Or you gotta let them go, right? And God spoke to Pharaoh in that moment, spoke to Pharaoh in the only way that Pharaoh would be able to hear him. And that was through violence and through power. And the Israelites, they left Egypt and they plundered Egypt. And so when they left, make no mistake about it, the Israelites were wealthy because they took a whole lot of stuff with them, right? And the, listen, the Egyptian people were not sad to see them go. They were, Pharaoh was mad. The rest of the Egyptian people were like, good riddance to the Israelites. And eventually Moses leads them to Mount Sinai, right? Which is, which is there that God establishes the Old Testament covenant with the people of Israel. Uh, that's where it happens. He essentially says, listen, I'm going to be your God, right? And you're going to be my people. And you will be separate from all of the other nations that surround you, right? And I have a very specific plan for you guys, a very specific plan. And here are the rules and the laws that you're gonna operate by and I'm gonna give you this land. And if you obey me, everything will be good. And if you disobey me, I'm gonna have to punish you. And if you embrace and take on the surrounding nations and their customs and their gods and polytheism, I will give you over to them to be ruled. And then when you repent, I will bring you back into the land, right? So it was conditional, God's covenant. It was conditional in the sense that they had to obey but it was unconditional in the sense of no matter what you do, as long as you turn back to me, I will welcome you back with open arms. And all of this was outlined when Moses came down off of Mount Sinai with not 10, as it's presented most all the time, but with 600 rules. Now, I want to talk about those rules and those laws for just a second. Um, Critics and skeptics from the beginning uh, have had an issue with those rules that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai. Um, Richard Dawkins, who is a, uh, an atheist author, uh, he wrote a book called The God Delusion. Uh, he says this, which, which may be a snapshot of some arguments that you've either heard um, people use against uh, the scriptures and against Christianity in the Old Testament, uh, maybe some things that you've thought um, yourself. Uh, and it may, it's a reason why a lot of people, these ideas that he's going to say, it's a reason why a lot of people have walked away from Christianity 
and God in general. Um, because while many of us were singing the B-I-B-L-E, anybody sing that song growing up? Yes, that's the book for me. Yeah, um, yeah uh, somebody came along and then showed you some very specific and violent and gruesome and quite honestly, and some of them very, very um, untolerable verses in that B-I-B-L-E that we had this childhood image of. And you look at those things and you thought, well, what kind of God would say and do these things that we find in the Old Testament? What kind of covenant is that? That's crazy. Here's what, here's what Richard Dawkins wrote um, in The God Delusion. He wrote, Judaism, originally a tribal cult of a single fiercely unpleasant God who was morbidly, mor- morbidly obsessed with sexual restrictions and with the smell of charred flesh. And that's the beginning of his statement. And he goes on and on and on about that is the God of the Old Testament. And, and, and this is all, you know, and if this is all you read or hear and you think, yeah, that is weird. Yeah, when I think of some of the things that the God of the Old Testament commanded to be done, that's barbaric. When I think about his obsession with some of the rules and some of the things, like the system of how we had to cover our sin, like, yeah, who would follow that? That seems crazy, right? Which is why I wanted to talk this about this for a minute, because this is absolutely wrong <laughs> to have that idea. It's absolutely wrong when it comes to understanding the Hebrew scriptures and the Old Testament. Now, I want to give you two examples of things in the Old Testament that people kind of point out and are like, ah, that God. Um, first is in Leviticus 18. Leviticus is where the majority of the law is found. Um, if, you, if you look at that card that I gave you a few weeks ago, and if you don't have one, you can pick one up on your way out off the uh, info table. Um, Leviticus is not in the timeline of events. Uh, it's one of those sub books because it was written and goes into the story um, that is on there. But... Um, uh, in that, um, you might, that's why if you ever start reading the scripture from front to back, you start in Genesis and Genesis is just fascinating with a lot of stories and Exodus, the story's continuing and there's some interesting there too. And then you get to Leviticus and all of a sudden the story falls apart and you have no idea what's going on and you have a hard time keeping your eyes open when you're reading it because it's so many just minute, ridiculous things. Um, it's the detailed covenant that God had with Israel. That's what Leviticus is. But when you get to chapter 18 and 19, the laws begin to focus um, on sexuality. That's what in 18 and 19 they're paying on. And if that was all you heard, you would say, see, this is why I'm not a religious person. This is why. Um, You know, there goes God getting into my personal life. There goes God getting into my bedroom and the things that I do uh, on my own. I don't want anything to do about that. But what's fascinating about this is that all of the 19 rules or laws or restrictions um, that you find in that section of Leviticus, all of them uh, were practiced in Egypt and Canaan, which those two together were practically the known world outside of Israel at the time. And God says, look, these are all going on in most of the known world. I want you to be different. I want you to be different. And the thing that's fascinating is is if you look at those, 17 of the 19 of the rules that were put out um, 
in every single developed nation of the world today, 17 to the 19 are illegal. And it's interesting that it did that because the point being, uh, the Hebrew people and the law that God gave them were way, way, way ahead of their time. Way ahead of their time, right? And it would take centuries for the surrounding nations to catch up to the laws that God had handed down, right? And one of those, one of those theme laws was this, Leviticus 18.6. No one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. Now, that just makes sense, right? <laughs> right? It's almost to us now, almost like, why would that need to be stated? Why does that have to be a law? That seems very reasonable. But it did not seem reasonable when the law was written. Because that's not how it's practiced. It didn't seem reasonable to the ancient Egyptians or to the ancient Canaanites or the surrounding nations. In fact, here's how far ahead that was, right? How far ahead of the time the Israelites were. Fast forward 1,500 years from when this became a law. 1,500 years. And you're in the time of Jesus being on the earth, right? And the Roman civilization had slowly begun to embrace these specific rules, But over in Egypt, 1,500 years after this, the monarchs are still marrying their siblings. It's still going on. It would take several more generations after this for that practice to cease. And my point is, is that you you, you can't just fly by the Sinai covenant that was handed down, right? And say, oh my goodness, this is so antiquated. This is so old fashioned. How oppressive this is. You can't do that because in its time, it was revolutionary. It was ahead of its time. It was a moral and civic code uh, that when understood in ancient context was actually pretty brilliant. And any good historian will tell you that you cannot pull something out of its ancient context and judge it by modern standards. It's one of the things that we're struggling with now is that we look back on things that happened a while ago and we judge them based on today's standards. And we think, well, how could people have done that? How could people have done that? I promise you, there are things that you are saying today that there's gonna be a time that we look back and we're like, oh man, I could never say that now. Because context will change. Meanings of things will change. Culture changes. And so it's always a danger to judge historical things by today's standards. And if you do that to the writings in the Old Testament, it's going to be a horror show. It's going to be absolutely terrible. It will strike us as unsophisticated. It will strike us as barbaric, but it wasn't. In fact, in fact, it was superior in every way when compared to the rest of the world that surrounded it at the time. The protections, the protections that the Sinai Code provided the most vulnerable at the time were nothing short of revolutionary. Women, servants, uh, foreigners, children, all did better in Israel. And again, if we judge what they were doing in Israel by today's standards, not good. Judged by every other nation surrounding them, way ahead of its time. And and here's the thing. Why? Why was that the case? 
because of what we said last week, that the Hebrew people believed in a singular God from the beginning and believed mankind was created in the image of that God and had inherent dignity. And they did not worship creation. They were the pinnacle of creation. And in being such, they were set apart. And it would take centuries for the rest of the world to catch up to that idea. In fact, there are parts of the world that still have not caught up to parts of the law that was given out 3,500 years ago. So back to the storyline. After the Sinai covenant, once Israel became a nation state, uh, they, against God's wishes, decided they wanted a king. Everybody else had a king, they wanted a king. And there was this whole string of kings that Israel had. And most of them were terrible. They were just not good. They were disasters. Because such is the nature of a person who is given all power. And these kings, they raised taxes and they went to war and they had multiple wives. Listen, if you find yourself in a position to where you have enough spouses that you can pick out a favorite spouse, your life is going to be overly complicated. (laughs) That's just the way it's gonna work, right? But this is what they did. But with their third king, which was Saul was first, David, and then Solomon. With their third king, Israel finally got something that every other nation had, right? And they, they, they got uh, something that they were looking for instead of just looking to God. And that was, they finally got a temple. Just like all of the other nations surrounding them had a temple, but theirs was different from the other temples. It wasn't different in the way that it appeared in its structure and the way that it worked. Um, It was similar in that aspect, but theirs was missing something that all of the other temples of the nations around them had. And that is this. Theirs was missing an image of the God for whom the temple was built. Every other temple in all of the other nations and for all of the other gods They had images or statues or something inside the temple of the God. But part of the covenant that God had made with the Israelites was no image of God because he was unable to be contained in or narrowed down to an image. Oh, and by the way, God said to the Israelites, "Uh, I don't live in this temple. I'm a mobile God. I'm gonna be everywhere. Now, interesting piece of history. In 63 BC, uh, about 60 years before Jesus uh, shows up, in 63 BC, Pompey had a few skirmishes with the Hebrew uh, people, and he annexed uh, Judea and Galilee into the Roman Empire. And he was fascinated to learn more about this troublemaking, singular, only God um, who would not join the pantheon of the gods and stay separate. And uh, so he goes into the temple, goes brushing right by the priest, goes through the curtain into the Holy of Holies that nobody's allowed in there um, because he's looking for this God. He's looking for the image. Let me meet the God that will not join the gods. And when he got in there, There was no God, right? There was a a table, some dishes, some gold, but no God. And when he found no God in there, he was so disgusted, he just turned around and left. Why? 
Because who ever heard of a God that didn't have an image? And God was thinking, you know, well, you're going to hear from me shortly. You're going to hear from me shortly. Now, back to the story. So, as I'm kind of giving you the overview of the Old Testament here, you've got Abraham, you've got Moses, you've got uh, Sinai, you've got the covenant, you've got kings, you've got temples. Like, it's a story, right? And since the kings would always be misbehaving, God would send prophets from time to time to warn them. Hey, you're getting off track. You better get back. Here's what you need to be doing. Now, when you read the Old Testament, a great deal of those writings in the Old Testament are those prophets giving their words into the specific uh, events that were going on at the time, right? But every once in a while, every once in a while, one of the prophets would look beyond their immediate circumstances, beyond the events that were going on, and would get a word that was about the future, and would speak into that. A future day in which God would do something through the nation of Israel for the entire world. Now, one of the most fascinating illustrations of this is found in the book of Isaiah. Um, He was writing, uh, this was about 600 years before Jesus would show up on the scene. And uh, most of his writings made sense in the context of what was going on in the nation of that day. You can read it and then get to your part in the storyline where those two things match up. And you're like, oh yeah, this makes sense. But there's one portion, one portion that he wrote that was mysterious to the Jewish readers. They couldn't connect it to anything, to any of the events that were going on. He talks about a servant whose suffering would benefit not only the nation, but the entire world, right? But the idea of this suffering conflicted with the temple structure of worship, right? Here are a few verses out of Isaiah chapter 53. Verse three, he was despised and rejected by mankind. And the original audience reading that is like, who is he? Who is this talking about? He keeps going, a man of suffering, and familiar with pain. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. So a person paid the price for our iniquities? Like, that's not how it works. That's what the animals are for in the temple system so that a person doesn't have to pay. He he keeps going. The uh, crush for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the iniquity of us all. And they're like, wait, who is him? And that's not how any of this works. It says, for he was cut off from the land of the living. Wait, so he died? Is that what that means? Yeah, he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Wait, wait, wait. So not only did this guy die, but he was buried as well? Yeah, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Well, now what? Wait, you just said he was buried. Now you're talking about him coming back to life? Yeah. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Now, this is not a chapter, this chapter of Isaiah. This is not a chapter that gets a lot of attention in Jewish teachings, right? In many ways, in the same ways that there are chapters of our scripture, of our Bible, 
that you will never hear a preacher talk about. Just kind of let's pretend that's not there. Most people don't read their Bible anyway. They'll never come across it. I'm just going to talk about the easy ones. We're not the only religious tradition to do that. Most, most uh, Jewish uh, teachers skip this. They don't talk about it, right? They treat it as if it's not even there. But most rabbis will tell you, if they sit down in the moment of honesty, they will tell you, this sounds like it is talking about Jesus. And they will follow that with, we do not accept Jesus as the Messiah. And that is about the extent of the conversation when it comes to Isaiah chapter 53 within the Jewish faith. Now, the point is this, is that the Hebrew, the the story of the Hebrew people is epic. And it's also interesting uh, that when you go through, if you look at the timeline on that card that I gave you, there's kind of a time when books stack on top of books in the timeline. Because there are two different accounts of the history of the Hebrew people. And they differ from each other. And here's why they differ. It's not that one's more historically accurate over the other, even though they say some different things. That's not the point. The point is, is that those two accounts were written at different times. At one point in time, the account was written in a time when Israel was in good standing with God. And they were being blessed and things were going well. And so their interpretation and understanding of how they related to God and who God was and how God worked had a very positive view. And that version of the history was written. And then later on, a couple hundred years, all of a sudden Israel had turned their back on God and gotten into trouble and done things they had not supposed to do. And they found themselves in exile and being ruled by other people. And it seemed God has turned it back. And it was a very dark time. And then the history was written again by some other people. And then all of a sudden that view was from God has abandoned us. And as you can imagine, if you were to see Right, two different histories. One from a person who everything was going really good and the other who it was not going good at all. You are going to get very different versions of what's going on. I mean, it's not hard to understand how that happens. One day in the not too distant future, people are going to be able to read the history of everything that's going on in our nation right now. And you would be able to read different versions of that history from there's going to be history written by people on one side of events and positions and standings and history written by people on the other side of events and history. And you would look at both of those and look at how different they are and how they don't seem to be together and how all of the events just don't seem to be having the same facts and the same, there's no agreement on anything that happened. And you would look back and people would look back and those response is not going to be, well, all of it must be nothing. It all must not be valid because there's two different accounts of history and what happened and they don't agree with each other. And we're smart enough to know it's not that the events didn't happen. It's that there were histories written from two very different points of view. And this is what happened in the Old Testament with the history of the Hebrew people. Two different versions from two different points of view. And so they view God very differently. And so within coming out of all of this, a Hebrew prophet, right, 
foretold of events in extraordinary detail that would take place 600 years later. And over and over and over again in the Old Testament, the Jewish people were a means, a divine means to a divine end, right? And being a mean makes you meaningful. It makes you meaningful. And if you want to have a meaningful life, you need to become a means to an end that is bigger than yourself, And the story of the ancient Hebrew people is you go through the Old Testament and hopefully I made the Old Testament sound a little interesting so you want to read the story. Um, It's a fascinating one because God waded into the fray and played by the rules that existed uh, in the kingdoms of the world that were established And he played by those rules, which sometimes was violent, which sometimes we can't understand. How could could God make these kinds of decisions? But he played by those rules of the earthly kingdoms in order to introduce a higher kingdom, right? And and to sand off the rough edges of the Old Testament, which so many of us want to do. Uh, to sand off the, the rough edges of the Old Testament version of God, his behavior is to miss the mess that the world was when he waded into it in order to see the story of redemption played out to its bloody end on the cross. And it's incredible because here's what the Old Testament shows. The Old Testament shows that God when he intervenes or wades into your situation, is going to meet you where you are. And the ancient Hebrew people were in a violent, brutal world. And so when he waded into it, he met them in their violent, brutal world. And he knew, I cannot take them from where they are to where I want them to be in one step. It won't work. So I have to engage them where they are through what they understand so I can then begin to move them to where I eventually want them to be. And when God chooses to intervene in your life and to step in and to help you progress from where you are now, he is going to step in where you are. And he is going to use ways that you understand to move you towards where you want to be. And listen, that is what good parents do. It's what good parents do. If you're a parent of a five-year-old and they ask you, where do babies come from? Your explanation is going to be very different to the five-year-old than if you were talking to a 15-year-old because you're going to address them where they are and what they can understand. And your explanation to a 15-year-old is going to be very different than the explanation of where babies come from to someone who's sitting in a medical school class. And none of the three explanations are a lie. They're all an explanation that the person in the moment as to where they are and what their world is, is able to grasp onto it and understand to begin to able to take the next step to progress in their understanding. And this is what the Old Testament demonstrates to us 
when it comes to God's behavior and the way that he interacted with the ancient Hebrew people. And so we cannot sand off those rough edges that when we read them now in our modern context are so unimaginable that we say, how could I ever follow a God that ever did that? Because he waited in in order to see the story of redemption played out to its bloody end on the cross. And it's incredible. And without all of that, the next part of the story could not have taken place. And we wouldn't be here today talking about it. Right? The Old Testament is not just a part of the Bible that we can skip past because there's some really uncomfortable things in it. It is the foundation of what would come next in the story of the interaction of God and man. It's the foundation. It's the story of God and his people that leads to the story of Jesus and redemption, which ultimately leads to us. So it's worth reading. It really is. And hopefully, 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 I've given you just enough pieces of the story today to pique your interest, to maybe go back and read some of the Old Testament stories as the foundation for where we're at today. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I, I thank you. I, I thank you that we have these writings, these ancient writings that we have which were written by people who were doing their best to capture their interactions, the interactions, the relationship between God and man, that we saw the way that you intervened. And we saw the way that you met the ancient Hebrew people where they were and took them a step closer and a step closer and a step closer to where you wanted them to be. Lord, I, I pray that for, for those of us who maybe have never, maybe we've been intimidated by the Old Testament. Maybe we've seen some of those passages that just seemed so horrific and so out of character of a God that we would want to claim to follow that maybe we've just kind of shut it out and not thought about it. God, help us to gain a better understanding of what the Old Testament is and what it represents and the way that it plays into the foundation of our faith today. Lord, I thank you for the immense value of these writings that have been preserved for us. May we engage them and allow them to become a deeper part of our faith and understanding of you. Lord, I thank you that you also meet us where we're at and speak to us and interact with us in ways that we can understand to move us closer to what you have for us. And that you are patient. And even when we turn away, all we have to do is turn back to you and you welcome us back with open arms. Lord, I thank you for that mercy and grace. In your name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much for being out today. Uh, look forward to next week as uh, hopefully I continue doing a halfway decent job of convincing you uh, that the Bible is worth reading. So.